Uh, We are in a series called Love Hate, uh, and there are two important texts that we're going to kind of kick this whole uh, morning off with, well, kick it off with, kick the sermon off with. Ecclesiastes 12, this is the last little bit of wisdom in this book. Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom uh, written by, uh, the the story is anyway, King Solomon, uh, who is the wisest ever to live, and his last word is this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. I've said everything I need to say. In other words, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment whether a secret, uh, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And I've taken this uh, to be kind of the theme verse of this series, that we need to take very seriously this idea that there are things that God loves and things that God hates. And if we want to be with God, we want to have a relationship with God, then we need to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Which brings us to the text that we're zooming in on today and last week as well from Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 17. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, which we talked about last week, pride, uh, and a lying tongue. Now, it would be a mistake for us to think that lying tongue just means um, just like lying straight up and doesn't mean anything else. Like when I tell Emery or ask Emery, did you do it, Emery? And to her, she looks at me blankly for a second with the wheels spinning. Should I say yes or no? Should I say yes or no? I did it. Should I say it? No, I didn't do it, Daddy. Like we're not just talking about those kinds of lies. We're talking about deception large, right? Deception, the ways in which we deceive one another. God despises deceit. Um, and that's a big sin. Is there anything worse than somebody lying to you or deceiving you? We all hate it, and we all do it, don't we? I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about this, this, whole, this whole idea, and this, a story came to my mind that to me is kind of the quintessential story about why you ought not be a deceptive person. And it brought also to my mind how weird religion is. How weird it is. And, and we miss it if, you, if you've been to church for a long time or maybe if you grew up in church, it's really bizarre. I grew up uh, going to church. So I went to church. I mean, we were like the Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Anybody else? And, and church camp. Yes. And VBS. And when the church needed to be cleaned. Or any other thing, we were there. And so I just grew up in all of this. And so it doesn't strike me as weird growing up in it. But now looking back and having kids of my own, this is kind of weird. Because I learned this story with a song. Ananias and Sapphira got together to conspire a plot. Some of you know it. eh? Peter prophesied, and then they both dropped dead. Hey, God loves a cheerful giver. Give it all you got. He loves to see. Yes. What a weird song. If you did not go to church, and this is like your first time to church ever, and you brought kids with you, and you're in the car driving home from church, and you're like, wow, that was an interesting experience. You say, hey, kids, what did you learn about God today? And they broke into Peter prophesied, and then they both dropped dead. Hey, like, like Russian like dancing or something. Like, how weird is that? So bizarre to think about a story, and we're telling the story. Hey, we're, and and what, what a bizarre, like, chipper way. It, it, you have to kind of do this. Like, I just feel... 
Because what's funny is the conclusion of that whole story is the whole church saw it and everyone that he heard about it was afraid. Like what it produced in people in this story was a sense of awe at the holiness of God. And we kind of don't communicate that with the spirit of that song. But I just thought, how weird. But I want my daughter to know that. That's a strange thing for us in today's day and age because it communicates something really important that we desperately want our children to get, and that is that you ought to fear God. If you don't know the story, I'm going to kind of tell a little bit. I'm going to kind of tell a little bit. Uh, It's on page 913 of the Pew Bible, and so you can kind of look it up and follow along if you want. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm only going to read a few verses of it. I'm kind of going to summarize it for you. The story goes like this. Uh, before Ananias and Sapphira, before this whole story that we have, we have kind of a pre-story. And the pre-story is that God's people loved each other. And for God's people, as they're looking at Jesus and living out this new power that they have in Jesus through the gift of the Holy Spirit, they love each other so deeply that they begin to sell the extra. We don't need three cars. We don't need a summer house. We don't need 14 TVs. We don't need all of these things. And they begin to sell the, the extra that they had, and they begin to bring it to the church, lay it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles would turn it over, and it would be distributed to those who had need amongst them. Let me do a small plug for our small church ministry, which we, we call small church. You may have heard it called small groups or life groups or whatever. Um, but our small church ministry, I know of a situation that happened recently in one of our small churches where one, of, uh, one, one couple really needed help. The name got brought up, the issue got brought up, and all of a sudden everyone pulled out their wallets and dropped money down to take care of this need. If you are not plugged in to a small community of believers where you hear one another's needs, you will never have the blessing of giving and receiving help. You'll never be able to live this out in the same way. And so I really want to plug. If you're not plugged into a small church, let me know. Email me, tweet me, Facebook message. I don't know how you'd Instagram it, but if you can figure out a way, that's, that's fine too. Get, 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 get with me and let me know, and I will we'll get you plugged in somewhere. So anyway, um, that's, this, is, this is what's happening. And so these are kind of big numbers. Barnabas is the, the main character. that He comes and he lays a bunch of money down. And Ananias and Sapphira, they see this. And they, they see how you know, the other people are like, wow, look at what Barnabas did, man. He is a really spiritual dude. Like, man. And Ananias and Sapphira, they want to get in on that action. They want to be thought well of amongst the community. And so they go and they sell some extra that they have as well. Only instead of laying everything at the apostles' feet, they keep a little bit back. But they pretend. They pretend like that's all that they've received. We've sacrificed so much, and here it all is. And Peter responds to this. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it was, your, while it was yours... And unsold, wasn't it yours? And once you sold it and you got the money back from it, wasn't that yours too? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, just like that. The young man rose up, carried him off, and buried him. Now, similarly, 
a little while later, Sapphira comes in and Peter asks, is this all that you received? And she says, yeah, that, that's, that's the whole sum. And she also falls over dead. Now, there's several things that are really important to this story. Uh, first, it's a great story, isn't it? It's just a fun story. I'm glad they made a song out of it. Maybe a little less, you know, chipper, but it's a great story. It seems like a bit of an overreaction, though, doesn't it? If you're new here to church and you're like, you might be asking the question, what kind of God is this? That, because, I mean, it's still a generous gift, wasn't it? Yeah? I mean, you know, you, you, you sell, you got some money, you bring it in, you lay it at the end. I mean, that's nice. You, you didn't have to do that. And so Peter could have, I'm not saying it was right, but maybe a slap on the wrist and not the death penalty. That's, because reading the story, you might think, God, that was a little extreme. That was a little extreme. But perhaps the point that we need to get into our head with regards to this is that we need to take sin as seriously as God takes sin. And we just, we just don't. Because we don't think of lying as worthy of the death penalty. We don't think of lying as being worthy of hell. But we pray, God, holy is your name, without considering what we mean when we say this. Because when we say that God is holy, we mean he is set apart. He is pure and perfect and other. And, and just getting that into our mind is really tough. Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body, which is right, the world, governing authorities, burglars, whatever. Those who can build, kill the body. Rather, fear him who can destroy both your life, your soul, and your body, and Jesus chooses the word hell in hell. Now, I'm not going to get fire and brimstone and jump around like a, a Baptist preacher. I don't have, that, don't have that in me. But I do think that we should take this verse very seriously. That it should give us pause to consider our mortality, our weakness, our need for God, our need to treat God seriously. The first message... Um, that Peter gave to the first Jewish convert. So, you know, Jesus came to the Jews. The story of the, the whole of Scripture is, is related to the, the history of the Jewish people. And Jesus comes to the Jews and then sends out his people. And the first one to go out to all of the world is Peter. And Peter speaks to Cornelius. And as Peter summarizes what he has been called to do, what he's been called to say by Jesus, he says this, and I give you this verse here. He says that... Jesus commanded us to preach to people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Tie that in with what we heard from Ecclesiastes. Solomon all the way back. Right? This is continuous through the scriptures that there's a day when every secret will be laid bare and we will be held to account for what we have done, what we have said, what we have thought, and what we have felt. And now we have a new bit of information. The one who judges us will be Jesus. In this instance, Jesus judged them in that moment. Now, all of us are pretty comfortable with this. We're pretty comfortable saying, you know, murderers, rapists, um, people who do really horrible things, Hitler or whatever. These are people who are worthy of maybe the death penalty, certainly worthy of judgment. These are people who deserve to be punished. But liars, right? I mean, come on. You're getting a little extreme here. But the reason that we feel comfortable with that is because most of us, hopefully all of us actually in this room are not murderers and terrible people, but we are all liars, aren't we? 
And so we're comfortable pointing our finger and throwing shade on sin that we don't commit, stuff that we consider to be extreme. But what happens when God considers something extreme that we don't? Who's right, you or God? That's the question. And for God, one lie to him is extreme enough to warrant death. I think that's something that we've forgotten in our culture, certainly in our culture, but even in our churches, we're uncomfortable with this kind of talk. We're uncomfortable with this kind of truth, and yet here it is. We know it from beginning to end. Scripture declares this truth, that we are sinners in need of saving. Now, why is lying or deception so extreme? Peter here ties it to Satan, doesn't he? Why has Satan filled your heart? Jesus does the same thing in John chapter 8. He's arguing with some good, God-fearing folk. And they are convinced they are good, God-fearing folk. And Jesus says, no, no, no. No, no, no. No, you're, you're a liar. Your father, the devil, and you do, your father's the devil, and you do the will of your father. You do his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his own language, to put it in my sort of paraphrastic version. He speaks his own language because that's who he is. He is the father of lies. And there are people that are like that. You ever run into people like that? It's just like every word that they come out of their mouth, you're, you're, I'm not sure I can trust that. It's just kind of a part of who they are. This is Satan. And what, and what we see then, central char- two central characteristics of Satan, both last week, pride, and this week, deception. Anytime we give in to pride or we give in to deception or we allow pride or deception to be the way that we live our lives, we ally ourselves with Satan. We put ourselves in his family line. As I said, what happened as the, uh, the church saw Ananias and Sapphira die instantaneously is that fear fell upon the church. And perhaps that's the first lesson to take away from this story is that we ought to take God seriously. Not that God is like some kind of mighty, judgy smiter who's just waiting for you to mess up. God is love, and he wants to embrace us, and he wants to save us, and he wants to draw us to himself. He wants to bring us into life. But he will not tolerate those who treat him flippantly. We need to be very serious when we draw near to God, and that's, that's kind of what's happening here. Now, why is it so important that, that, that truth is, or, or the lies and deception are something God hates while truth is something that God loves. If you kind of put those two things, they they set, what does God love? God loves truth. What does God hate? God hates deception. He hates lies. Why? Because lies are the antithesis. They are the opposite of who God is. God is centrally also truth. The Gospel of John, which tells us the story of Jesus' life, and one of the fourth um, book that does that in the Bible, takes great pains to reveal to us how tied, intricately tied, Jesus is to this concept of truth. He says in in introducing Jesus to him, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He says, if we remain in Jesus, if we abide in Jesus, and we're keeping his words, then we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. It sets us free from all kinds of lies, so that we can see what is really real and live according to what is really, really real. Jesus himself is called the way, the truth, 
and the life, the Holy Spirit which comes and, and dwells in the believer. So there is a spirit that is sent from God after Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He promised to send the Holy Spirit. And the spirit that comes to dwell in us, to be the presence and guiding force of God, is called the spirit of truth. In fact, Jesus says this, in John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, and here he refers to the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, as I just said, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now this is important then. This is a central characteristic of God. Jesus is called the truth. Jesus is truth. The Spirit is truth. And therefore the believer ought to be Possessed by truth. Now I want you to put on your Halloween caps. I, got, I just got three eyeballs that were not looking at me. Not three eyeballs, because that would be weird. Three kids, six eyeballs, said Halloween, boom. <laughs> Great. Um, so put on your Halloween caps, because you've all seen scary movies, or you all have heard of scary movies. Not so much our sweet Emery, but others uh, where the demon or something comes into the person, they begin to do things that they wouldn't normally do. You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen these movies or commercials? The person is now animated and doing all kinds of terrible things. It's not maybe their own conscience or their own will, but this thing that has come and, and, and filled them up and possessed them to be crazy. In the same way, or a similar way, what we read here in the scriptures is that while that fictitious kind of nonsense that Hollywood puts out, although demon, demonic possession is a real thing, um, it just doesn't look like pea soup and stuff. Um, the believer is possessed now by a Holy Spirit. And the, the animating force now of our life is directed by truth. Now we are truth tellers. Now we are filled up with the Holy Spirit. And now the, the truth is just something that we're living, breathing, walking witnesses to the truth of Jesus. And, and our, our disposition is always towards honesty and always pushing away from dishonesty, whether we're talking about something like directly lying to somebody or we're talking about being authentically who we are at all times and not having skeletons and secret sins in our closet, but rather living truth, whether it's declaring the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, whatever, whatever that is, we are possessed, dominated, and led by truth. The gospel takes great... Um, Great pains to draw our attention to this, which is why it is so horrific when Christians don't live according to the truth, because it is central to who we are now to be in Christ. But there are plenty of obstacles to truth in our lives and in our society, and I want to share three that I think of. Uh, politeness. Politeness. Uh, it wasn't too long ago, maybe couple of months, that I just straight up, I want to give myself an excuse, but I'm just not going to. I just straight up lied to this guy on the phone. He was calling me. We were talking. I'd called him. It was a conversation about um, uh, a doctorate of ministry program. Um, I had started another one, uh, but he wanted, you know, he was calling to kind of recruit me for this other school. And I 
I had already started this other one, and I was like, I, I, don't, I know that he doesn't like that school. I don't want him to think badly of me. I don't want to hurt his feet. I had all of these like, lists of polite things in my brain, and it wouldn't have mattered. It's so stupid, because I could have just said, well, you know, I started another program. He'd have been like, okay, cool, hung up the phone, and been done with it. He probably forgot me two seconds after he hung up the phone, but for some reason, I had this like, polite bone in my body that was like, I can't just tell this guy the truth. And so I lied to him. God didn't strike me be- dead. Praise be. Uh, but you ever do that? You just, or, or maybe, you know, and I didn't, I'm, I'm you know, well, you know, this and that. I could have just been straightforward, and we just aren't, because our polite society kind of has us trained not to hurt one another's feelings, even if it wouldn't really hurt one another's feelings, not to make us look bad, which drives us to the second piece, image. We are image-obsessed. Now, you can imagine how important truth was in the ancient world. You have somebody show up to your house and they say, I want to teach you something about God. You cannot Google this person, right? There's no way to know. There's no way to call someone and say, hey, this guy says he, he used to be at your church and he's moved to a new town and, and he wants to be, you know, he wants to preach and teach amongst us. So integrity, your word is so important in the ancient world. And today we have something similar to that because, you know, the internet never forgets. <laughs> Which is, brings up a funny conversation Dush had the other day with me when he said that I ruined anyone's opportunity to, to, uh, to run for political office with the sermon I preached two weeks back. So you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. I've saved you from that. Uh, but we have the same kind of in- in- impulse these days where you know, you, there's so much information out there that, that truth is really hard, hard to find. Uh, but what I think is more pressing on us is this kind of wanting to always be looking good. And it made me think, as I was thinking about truth and living authentic lives, I thought of this little clip. I don't know if you've ever seen this clip. This is one of the funniest little clips. This goes on for like three minutes. I love this face too, right? This is, this is at a baseball game, and it goes on for about three minutes of them just doing different poses with their hot dogs here to get the right one because, you know, you've got to have the best one on Instagram, you got the best one on Facebook. If you don't do any of those things, that's okay. But, but this, is what, this is how obsessed we are with image. We are constantly trying to look as good as we can in front of everybody, even when it's not authentic. The last one that I'll bring up here is stability. This is probably... Um, one of the biggest issues in churches, although we experience this in the business world, we experience this where we, where we live and work sometimes too, but because you, know, you don't have a voice in that. Um, here, every voice counts. Every voice matters. And so we wrestle with stability in such a way that we resist change. It is so hard for us to hear we need to do something different because it feels like a condemnation of the past, which it isn't. It is asking the question, what do we need to do to move forward? And that is a question that should matter so much to us that we are willing to have honest but uncomfortable conversations. Stability in the sense of somebody who is maybe a younger person who's wrestling with their faith, and we just give them pat answers. Just uh, Let me tell you right now, there's the answer to that. Moving on. When they need to wrestle with it for themselves, they're wrestling with what to do with evolution they're wrestling what to do with lgbt issues and we shut them down immediately rather than letting them air it out and work it through because we are uncomfortable because we're afraid that they will come to the conclusion that we don't like so we try to shut it down and stop it because we want stability 
And let me tell you, that gets you nowhere with questioning young people. It gets you nowhere with people who are asking deep questions. And it doesn't help any of us. Because I love this, this verse. There's a verse that I remember from uh, Proverbs. I actually can't remember where it's found, but I, I've sort of had it in my brain all these years. Uh, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another person. To sharpen is to scrape the burrs off, right? To, to bear down. Sparks are made. Pain exists. And that is what you need to sharpen yourself. You need someone else who is going to say, are you right about that? And if you want to be sharpened, because we're always willing to sharpen somebody else, if you want to be sharpened, you have to be open to that question. Are you right? And that is something we don't want. And we love stability. All of us love stability. I sat in, that's where we sat the first Sunday we came, and that's the first, that's a seat we're going to have until we're dead or leave or get new pews or something. I don't know what we'll do then. Probably sit in the same spot. We love stability. It's a part of who we are as people. But stability does not bring growth. Stability keeps us where we are. So, we are called instead to be people of truth who are asking questions about truth. Where is God going? What is God leading us to? What has God got next for us? We are to be truth that is physically possessing the individual, but it is also to create an alternative community, a people who are willing to work through issues together. Paul says this in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 is a great place to really dig into and think about how truth applies within the community, the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Do you see the connection here? Do you want to grow up into Christ, become more and more and more like Jesus? If you want that, then you have to be a person who is willing to give and to receive truth, to have truthful conversations that are directed because you are concerned with that other person growing into the headship of Christ, growing into Christ likeness. Why does God love honesty? It is because that constant search for truth allows us to grow up into Jesus. And Paul envisions a community that does that here in verse 25, a few verses later. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let you speak, let's let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And I think this is one of those pieces that we often forget. Because we are very much an individualistic. Uh, society, church, culture, where I'm very interested and, and I can grab a hold of I need to be living, breathing truth, but I often forget how that intricately ties to being a member of one another. That if Paul isn't honest with me or Gwen isn't honest with me or Steve isn't honest with me or we aren't able to have those kind of conversations that we can't together sharpen one another so we can grow. And maybe I'll come to the conclusion that Steve's wrong, do it all the time, but I've at least considered it, thought again, and grown. Have new conversations, having new thoughts. Let each one of us do this so that we might mature into faith. A truth community is one that can ask and answer questions about our spiritual walk. We can talk honestly and openly about topics that make us uncomfortable and that are difficult to navigate because there are a lot of topics out there that are uncomfortable and difficult to navigate. But if we don't have a place where we can feel safe enough to bring those questions to bear, then we will not grow. And I want you to think about how much truth 
And having that attitude, having that question, having that ability begins to give birth to so many other gifts of the Spirit. Because if you become a person who is open to new ideas or open to being criticized, suddenly you have taken the place of the student and you have allowed someone else to be your teacher. Which is a place of what? Humility. And that seems to be very much related to Jesus. Think about the patience it takes to have a difficult conversation with somebody and say, I'm not understanding you, but I'm getting mad, right? And, and you're not understanding me, and you're getting mad, and we have to be patient with one another as we begin to ask the question, am I following God well? Are we doing this rightly? What's this scripture really mean? How do we deal with this issue in society? All these different things are, are run, run together, but patience can be fruit that is bore out from that. And lastly, I would bring up slow to speak. And slow to become angry. Two things which I am not good at. But by accepting truth from other people. And trying to listen to those things. I can begin to grow and bear more fruit of the spirit. Consider how Paul ends this whole section. Therefore, and this is kind of his idea, he, he, this, is his, this is his first line, his kind of summary line, and then he's going to bear out all of the different ways in which if we are the people who put away falsehood, so much more can happen. Having put away falsehood, do, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, right? Because that's not truthful. It's dishonest. But rather, let him labor and do honest work so that he can share with anyone who has a, has a need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building people up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and, and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you from you with all malice. But be kind to one one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. All of that begins with us being a community of truth who are committed to one another. Now, I want to give you an action-packed, awesome conclusion. I want to challenge you to do something with this and not just say, well, I'm going to be a person of truth. I want you to do that too. If you've been... Lying, stop, pray for forgiveness, ask for forgiveness, begin a person who tells the truth. If you've been dishonest in your business practices, stop it and be an honest, forthright person. Be an image bearer of God in truth. But I also want to challenge you to take this a step further and I want you to find someone who can criticize you. I want you to find someone who can say to you, Let me, it's great that you come to worship it's great that we, we come to the table together. It's great that you, you, hopefully you're getting the word preached and it's meaningful to you. It's great that you pray. It's great that you fellowship. But when in your week does someone who knows you well ask the question, have you been faithful to God? When in your week do you have someone that you can say, I failed with this and I, I need to grow here. Tell me how to grow here. Who does that in your life? When does that happen outside of you? Because if you just leave it up to you, you're largely going to be blinded by your own belief about how good you are. Because almost all of us have kind of inflated ideas about how good we are. And we sometimes need somebody to come along and say, no, you're not as good as you think you are. Here's an area where you see 
the need for work. And because I threw myself under the bus, I'm going to use myself as an example. If this, I, I do this frequently. I seek out, and there are several people in the room who can, who can testify to this. I seek out people who can criticize me, who can say, you need to grow here. And every single time, it ticks me off. <laughs> every time. And I have to swallow that anger and that pride, and I have to say, you know what? I have to hear this. Why do you think they crucified Jesus? Because he told them truths they didn't want to hear, and they had the power to do it, right? I mean, this is, this is what we need to do. We need to be people who can receive that kind of criticism so that we can grow and expand and become, become better. And I want you to encourage you to make probing questions a priority. I love it that we talk about our week, and when you, you know, I, in our greeting time, which is, which is short at the beginning, um, you, you don't have time to dive into things, but if you have the opportunity to ask one another, instead of just asking, how are you doing, and you say, I am fine because I'm physically here and doing fine, right, probe deeper. How is your spiritual walk? How is your prayer life? These are questions that are not polite. They are invasive and intrusive, and you and I need them. We need to be a community of truth if we are to be people who are possessed by truth so that we might be people that give and bear witness to the truth. I love this passage of Scripture. It's sat with me for a long time, this Ephesians passage, having put away all falsehood and speaking the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And I love how he ends this passage where he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. It is, it is the truth that has set you free, but it is imperative that we are people who bear witness to that truth. Here's some practical ways to do that. I want to encourage you to be about that this week and to think hard. Who can speak truth into my life so that I can be a better witness to the truth. As we come to conclusion this morning, we offer an invitation. We'll have the elders down front. If, um, if you need prayer, if you need to confess some sin, if you need uh, help in any area, if you need to, to place your faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, we invite you to come forward to meet with our elders so that they can pray with you, pray over you, walk with you, and hold you accountable. Let's stand as we sing this last song. You are God and Savior.